Hey everybody, we are Martin, Robert, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head, rent-free. Hey everybody, welcome back to Snakes and Otters. This is episode 60. I am Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. So this is a Our Heroes episode, third Friday of the month, and uh, Francis and Robert are indulging me a little bit. And have agreed to do uh, one of my heroes again, George Orwell. So, uh, any initial comments, guys? Before I, I, I will launch into a little bit of a bio sketch on on George. We always indulge you, Martin. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps a little more than usual these last couple of heroes, because I got to pick uh, P.J. O'Rourke and. Uh, I've gotten to pick Orwell here. Yeah. I'm liking them both. That's right. Right. And that's the beauty of the, the beauty of the way this works is we each bring something that one of us knows a little bit more about sometimes than the others do. And that's not always the case, but uh, I think that's the fun part because we each get to stretch a little bit uh, and and figure out what it is that we don't know. Well, that's always when the fun happens. It's also good that that we bring our heroes from very um, uh, very, very varied uh, backgrounds and sources because that way we are far more likely to hit somebody that, you know, somebody in the audience uh, is going to want to listen to. That's right. Yeah. We'll listen about. It's all about, uh, all about learning, all about intellectual growth a little, like you said, to stretch a little mm-hmm. and learn something about somebody different, you know. Uh, uh, I didn't know a whole lot about uh, Aquinas or Augustine or Thomas More, but now I, I get your passion about those type of people, mm-hmm. and I hope at the end of this episode you will see some of my passion about uh, Orwell. Right, he is my favorite novelist, pretty much. Even though really there's just kind of two important novels: Animal Farm and 1984. Um, well, let's give a little background sketch. Uh, obviously, he's an English novelist, essayist, journalist, critic. Um, he uh, kind of started his career more as sort of one of these English civil servant type guys, uh, you know, kind of funneled into that sort of a career in Burma and India, and grew up in that time in the early 20th century in Britain where class structures were very important. And he was not really the upper class folks. He, he was just kind of a, um, just the son of, a, of another English civil servant. Um, he described his family as lower upper middle class. <laughs> so um, he began writing and started as again more as an essayist, uh, a magazine contributor. Um, began to have connections with others uh, in this very fertile time uh, after World War One of of, this, of English literature and his very very formative episode uh, after his work as a policeman in Burma and kind of bumming around England 
exposing himself to lots of different types of people. Uh, the real formative episode is the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. And, you know, the Spanish Civil War is one of those where I like to say, well, there was nobody to root for. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You have basically communists fighting fascists. Uh, and going into the whole win. background. I was going to say, no matter, who, no matter who wins, you both win and lose, you know? Yes, yes. Yeah, no matter who wins, everybody loses. Um, so, again, we don't want to go into a whole, whole huge background of the Spanish Civil War. Um, everybody starts to get a hand in. Again, the Soviets get a hand in. The Nazis get a hand in. Uh, both sides are kind of backed by other players. And Orwell's a bit of an idealist. Again, at this, he, his uh, birth name is actually Eric Blair. Uh, he, he takes on Orwell as a, a nom de plume, but uh, he goes to Spain as a volunteer for the loyalist side, uh, the, basically the left. And what he finds, though, is that there's left and then there's left. Uh, hmm. um, basically, as as the Soviet end of it becomes more and more pronounced and more and more um, influential, the loyalist side begins to purge, and you know they're they're they have terms for all that. Of course, you're um, you're a running dog imperialist, that kind of stuff. So right. basically, big dog. Yeah. So, you know, you're not just fighting the fascists, you're fighting other factions within your own side. And yeah. essentially he ends up with a price on his head. Um so he's purged out of the the fighting forces um of the loyalist side in Spain and has to basically sneak his way uh back to Britain and get smuggled out of Spain. Um after being accused as a Trotskyist, and hmm. that's basically being the same as a Francoist to, to the hardcore on the left. So I think that part there especially is super formative of his writings, uh, especially Animal Farm and uh, 1984, uh, which are both published more in the 40s uh, after the, that experience in the, in the, six, in the 1930s. So, um, 1984 really is the one for me that discovering it shaped a huge part of my worldview of, I don't want to say I'm like suspicious of things, but I'm cautious about movement and anything, anything big, I guess is the, a goofy way to say it. Um, you know, skepticism, I think there's a huge part of Orwell that's skeptical about things. He still mm. described himself as a socialist his whole life, right. even after sure. Spain. Um, but he, he, he wanted to see real democracy 
uh, is kind of a term of the nowadays is democratic socialism. We, he considered himself a democratic socialist his whole life, even after writing 1984. But he did stand strongly against totalitarianism. Right. And I think that that has become part of my DNA and part of where I am about, you know, I, I, lots of people say such and such is an authoritarian or a totalitarian or this or that. And I think it, what 1984 did for me is be able to distinguish between that kind of goof rhetoric and what's really authoritarian. Oh, yes. And, and what, um, you like know, that. look, there are actual safeguards in place in a real democratic society. You don't throw those aside and think that, oh, I'm increasing democracy. No, you're not. You're, you're moving towards the path of tyranny if mm -hmm. you remove the brakes and the safeguards. Because a tyranny of the mob is essentially what 1984 becomes. It, it's not the tyranny of a single person, the vision of a Hitler or something like that. It's the tyranny of the party and everyone being subsumed into that that mob mentality of the party. And again, the same thing that he encounters in Spain of, well, you're not left enough. You're not progressive enough. You're not loyalist enough. So we're purging you out. Well, I that's interesting you said that because when I think of 1984, I don't think of that as um, anything expressing the mob as you're talking about because well, yes, everybody there is obviously one political entity. There's there's no uh, sense that there's any rival for power inside the the country. Um, but to me, it seems though that there's he expresses the the feeling of people. It's through Winston that they're afraid of the government. They're not so much the, the people around them, unless it's to be ratted out by them to the, the, yeah. yep. the government. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't, know, I, I don't necessarily see the connection to the mob other than they all become part of one group, uh, yeah. whether it's conforming or whatever. But I, mean, I understand where you're going with that, but, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's that, you know, Big Brother's essentially a fiction. True. There is, I mean, that's kind of the part that you have to, you have to, the leap you have to make in understanding the novel is Big Brother's a fiction. It's not really one person. It's whatever, you know, truth is whatever the party is. It's more dangerous than that. It's, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's covered in euphemisms and it's covered in, uh, in a creation. Uh, in many respects, it's smoke and mirrors. But if you can get everybody to believe in the lie, then that's where the power comes from. Yeah. Because he's kind of going back to that understanding of all governments everywhere only exist by the will of the people every, throughout every point in history. Uh, because if the government does not, if the people do not tolerate it, they outnumber everybody else by, by definition. Yeah. And, and revolution happens. Uh, there's, Unless uh, you can build an apparatus that suppresses that. That's and correct. That's Ultimately, that's necessary. is done. Well, yeah. even even so, at some point, you can get no matter how. Because uh, to me, you know, coming from my perspective, 
the, the government in 1984 in, in, in that Britain, to me, didn't look like fascism, even though I know that, that was his intention now. That, that, those fasc- that looked to me like Soviet Russia. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I because was realistically, earlier, yes. there is no difference between fascists and, and, and Soviet communism and how people are treated. There's one party, and they control everything. You know, with fascists, there may be a, a greater fiction of, of uh, individual freedom or ability to choose things, but it's just a fiction. Right. Communism is probably just a little bit more honest about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they're yeah. the same to me. Yeah. The, the difference is there's still private ownership of the companies, but when the government tells the company what to produce, what's the difference? Right. Well, yeah. And, you, you, and, you and in communism, yeah. yeah, there is no there is no personal ownership of anything. Um, you know, like we, we you said it before, Robert. When 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 everybody owns something, no one does. Yes. And you're exactly right. That is the, that is the stand that Orwell's taking. Uh, is that both? Yes, uh, both novels, uh, Animal Farm and and 1984, are comments, particularly on Soviet Russia. Um, but they can be they can be more than that because, again, to me, it's it's a comment on the the when you take the brakes off when you take the safeguards away in the guise of being for the benefit of everyone or to expand democracy then you're you're back to the failed experiment that even the Greeks had direct democracy doesn't work um, right well know. which is why we're a republic exactly exactly so that 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 and, and the the skill uh, in for Orwell is I just think he he took that dystopian idea of a of a a future that dehumanizes the individual person and makes where the state is everything. I think it's the highest expression of that idea of that warning to us: mm-hmm. don't take the brakes off your democracy. Uh, well, it, it presumes that human beings, left to their own devices, will ultimately dehumanize other human beings. It's it's almost in our DNA. Yeah. We uh, yeah. we Catholics would call it original sin, mind you. Yeah, uh, but as Catholics, though, we we also recognize that um, you, know, you know our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. Uh, oh, for you, Allison, since, yeah. since you mentioned him earlier. Yeah. Um, Duality of mankind, humanity, that's great. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know, in that desire for God, uh, theoretically, should push us towards uh, being better, if not truly good, with a capital G, but, you know, being better to one another. But it seems like there's always those who want to be selfish – which essentially, when you turn away from God, you, it's it's you're being selfish. That's just that's a definition of sin. Period. Yeah. Uh, you tend to be far more uh, ready to because turning away from God is also a dehumanizing moment of others. You are far more willing to do violence to others when you become selfish, and you are far more willing to. 
You require others to think as you do, which is where you're going with this, I think, Martin, is that the taking the breaks, as you put it, off of uh, the, 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 the people in the sense that we've all got to say, uh, every voice can be heard, even if not every voice is uh, listened to in the sense that it's acted on. What they want is acted on. They are still heard. Um, sometimes not very well, but they're heard. So this whole idea, though, that, that the selfish being more ready and willing to be, uh, for lack of a better term, militaristic in imposing, because uh, that's what it is. It's imposing taking the brakes off. Because by mm-hmm. doing this, you give rise to, as you were saying, that direct democracy that failed in, in, in Greece, uh, and you are giving rise to uh, the, not just mob rule, because that implies it's unorganized, but the world of Big Brother is very organized. Mm-hmm. But that mob, because we all want to belong, eventually those multiple voices get drowned out into one voice. Mm-hmm. And when that happens... All, with all the safeguards gone, there's nothing to hold it back. So I think, you know, to show parallels to today, this is identity politics winning out, where the group is far more important than the individual. Uh, it's the push to eliminate the Electoral College. I'm not saying that doing that yeah. leads automatically to the world of 1984, but this whole idea that because, um, you know, We've had two elections in uh, this century where the person who won the presidency did not win the popular vote, that everything is broken. Well, no, it's not broken. And I don't say that because, for instance, the last I didn't vote for either one of the last two candidates. So as far as I'm concerned, I lost. <laughs> but I don't want to tear down the system because my candidate didn't win. Because I recognize that you know, you're only going to have the guy who wins for four or eight years, no matter who wins, because we've got a mechanism in place to make sure that he will be replaced. You know, there's a thing going on, uh, you know, I forget where it was, but a former pastor was telling me about a, uh, an article that was sent to him by one of our uh, mutual friends about what happens if President Trump decides not to leave in after the election in November. If he loses, he decides, eh, you know, things were hinky. There's, you know, this national emergency going on. I think I'm just going to stay on and declare national law or, or martial law and blah, blah, blah. And this, this article laid it, apparently laid it all. I've not read it. And one, I don't think it would happen because even I don't think he's that, Yeah, they would do that. I, I just, to me, I just don't see it. Uh, and I don't even like the guy. So it's, you can't say I'm a, I'm a Trump guy. Um, but more importantly, I just find it hard to believe that, that the organs that he would need to do that would go along with it at this point in time. That makes no because sense. Because we yeah, have that's, those breaks. That's correct. Right? That's in our DNA, our, our political DNA. There's just no way for that to... to for, uh, well, right I mean, now, yes. That's right. Got to the point at this point in time, yeah. 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 So... Doing something like getting rid of the Electoral College, uh, on the one hand, sounds great because it sounds like, well, you know, everybody's vote is equal. But not really, because 
we are not equally dispersed throughout the country as far as opinions. And that's just natural. When a group of people live in close proximity, they tend to develop similar views because they have similar self-interests, right? Right. And those similar self-interests, the larger the group gets, I think tend to be uh, more conformist. Um, and, and maybe that's not always true because the you know, rural areas are, are tend to be very conformist in their own views. So maybe it's not. But the point is, though, um, by getting rid of that break, you get to the point where the mob truly can dictate, even if it's yep. through the ballot box. That is they exactly right. You know, why should I trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away? I mean, it's the famous Franklin quote. And it's so true because yeah. why in the world uh, – pe- people have a tendency to want to dominate others. They want their way. It's always been that way. And the political process does no favors to us as a whole because it implies that only so many get to win and everybody else gets to be sidelined. And that's really where I think we our, our process has fallen down because ultimately there is one winner, but that winner is the president of the entire nation, and therefore everyone needs to be enfranchised in some fashion. But you a, know tr- a true leaders would do that. It's not, I don't think there is one winner. I think there's 350, however many it is, 330, 350 million winners because when we have that transfer of power on a regular, scheduled basis, right without bloodshed, everybody wins. Agree. Yep. Yep. There yeah. are no losers in that. You're not going to get your way. I mean, literally, except in those years where there are massive landslides, approximately half of the country is not going to get their way. You know, It's very rare that anybody gets less than 45% of the vote. Yeah. So, well, and how you react to not getting your way is a huge part of that you know, that Orwell's warning us about. Yeah. yeah. Take, you know, it's baby steps. Oceania in, in 1984 didn't get to Big Brother and the Two Minutes Hate and the Ministry of Truth and Room 101 immediately. It was sold as a baby step that's immediately necessary. And that's then where the world ends up. And to me that's the warning is don't take those breaks off even though you think it's good intentions because it's a small step that's needed to eventually get to there only is going to be one power base and one well you know express it the best way or the best way to express it is the way Orwell did and the future is a boot stamping on a human face forever. Um, that's where you end up, and it, yeah. it you know it ties directly to you guys and and your inherent dignity of the human person. There you go. When you, when you are willing to we'll abandon that, that. Yeah. yeah. When you're willing to abandon that, the world of 1984 is inevitable. Your your end game. 1980, the world of 1984 is Thanos, if you do that. <laughs> yeah, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Well, yeah, and it, we've seen this time after time after time in history, if you follow it. 
uh, and so many folks don't. So many are unfortunately clueless, but they we do that at our own peril, and we've talked about that many, many, many times, mm-hmm. is that there are examples, Soviet Russia is the easy one, but there are many others yeah. uh, where uh, there are those who will dictate how life is to be lived. And the, the most insidious kind are the ones that say, we're doing this for you. For your own and good. Yet, good. For your own good. And yet, there are clear winners and losers in the Actually, way that it comes about. The most insidious is not that. It's not only are we doing this for your own good, it is the will of the people. Because oh, that yeah. gives it a faux moral authority. The will yeah. of the people resulting in a, a fascistic or you know, Soviet Russia kind of communism is this. It is, which is also the definition of democracy. You know, democracy is two wolves and a rabbit voting on what's going to be for dinner. Mm -hmm. You know, but that's also fascism in the world of 1984. Yeah. And a republic is the rabbit having a rifle. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, well, you know, you, you say that they veto, exactly right. but the rifle is the veto. So, yeah, the <laughs> rifle is the ultimate veto. Power flows from the barrel of a gun. Oh, I just did mousy tongue in the middle of this one too. Um, well, it is all about power, gentlemen, and we know this. We've talked about this many, many times. That is what we're dancing around. We haven't used that word yet, yep. but that's where is the power? You know, supreme executive power uh, draws from a mandate from the masses. Uh, as Monty Python would say, uh, but it's it's still it's true. But you can obfuscate, like well, Orwell explained. You can make them think if you're good at it. You can make them think that this is their idea. Yes, if you exactly what you're the past, Yeah, it is. It is not so much a mandate from the people; it is the acquiescence of the people. Oh, I'll, I'll go Alan Moore on you uh, from V from Vendetta, which is very much about what we're talking about here. Is uh, we understand that there are a myriad of problems, but all this, but you turned in your fear to someone who demanded only your silent and obedient consent. We can save you if you will let us do what we want, and that was, uh, it was Alan Moore. It was intended to be. Uh, a moratorium. It was a commentary on what he considered the evils of Thatcherism, but really, it's uh, it is a, a Hitlerian uh, fable. Well, it's because it is, the, it is the classic liberal move, uh, even 30 years ago, uh, and that is that anybody who is to the right of you is automatically an evil fascist. Correct. Yeah. He was ahead of his time because yeah. that's what we see today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the, the right does it, too, where anybody who's the left of you is a communist. Right. No, that's, yeah. you know... Well, because demonization is required in order yeah. to achieve supreme executive power. Yeah. Well, it doesn't to, come back to that. Demonization is required to, to I think, assume uh, or to grant supreme executive power in the smallest number of people. And that's the evil that... that uh, well, uh, that's... That is a nuance we problem. haven't talked about yet, but you're yeah, exactly right. It is, it, it's granting the, the executive power in the smallest number of people while under the guise of serving the greatest number of people. And that's what all politics is today. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on because they all say, we will save you if you let us do what we want. Ultimately, that's what every political platform boils down to. Mm-hmm. The difference between now and 50 years ago uh, is that once all the mudslinging was over, they generally tend to got got down to, to brass tacks and did the work of the country. 
not so much anymore. Um, And I think that leads to the breakdown that ultimately enables, not guarantees, but enables you to get to the world of 1984. Answer me this, boys. Is this is is 1984 inevitable in some fashion? Well, yes, because it was 26 years or no, 36 years ago. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, uh, so the numerical semantics there. Uh, I guess we. I guess I kind of asked for that. I mean, uh, a pun is one of the highest forms of humor, as Thomas More would say, and uh, not so. One lowest, depending on your point of view. But Martin, I you suppose. were about to, to answer his question. I think seriously answer my question. Yes. Well, this is going to be this answer is going to be a paradox. Okay. Best mine. My answer to your question is no. I don't think it's inevitable. Nothing's inevitable. Except Thanos. Yeah, we Sorry. can stop it, but we have to have here it comes moral courage Ooh. to say very good. Say, you know, it's Just, time to stop the fundraising. It's time to stop demonizing the other side and not solving any problems because you're fundraising off of those problems. Um, you know, again, that whole, okay, well, anybody, you know, to the right of Mitt Romney is a fascist kind of thing is... A, a fundraising deal, yeah. and, you know, it, we need to stop. Like you said, it, it's there's work to be done. Um, figure this out and get to it. But at the same time, I think there's also there are other safeguards. I think in place um, that are here, and it, again, learning. Uh, intellectual curiosity. There are people out there that are, are driving our future to a better place. I, I'm, I'm not normally known for my optimism, guys, but um, I, I don't think Orwell's world is inevitable. I think his his cautionary tale helps us to recognize the danger. Uh, and not just his his cautionary tale, Fahrenheit 451 uh, from Ray Bradbury, uh, Brave New World from Aldous Huxley. These are kind of the holy trinity of the dystopian novels. Uh, as long as every generation reads those, mm-hmm. not everyone in that generation has to absorb everything about that novel, but enough will. Enough people will absorb a Fahrenheit 451 to understand that when the when the fascists, the true fascists, begin to talk about obliterating the past and burning the books, because that's really you know, like Orwell says, if you control the past, you control the future, and he who controls the present controls the past. We talked a little bit about. Uh, okay, removing the statues and and all of that. Okay, good. I, you're right. You know there doesn't need to be a statue of Jefferson Davis in the Kentucky Capitol. But we can't obliterate the past. If we obliterate the past, 
we have no grounding for the future. We have well, no way to repeat it too. Yeah, we have no understanding of what the what is possible in the future. One of the problems with with this current, and it's not so much this current because this goes on all the time, but um, it's it just brought to the the, the, pub, the forefront of the public mind right now. But with this whole thing about we want to remove any mention of anybody we find morally repugnant. I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago during the Gettysburg episode. Mm -hmm. I think I brought this up. Is that when you start down that road, at some point, somebody in the future is going to find you morally repugnant. <laughs> and yeah. you are going to be removed from history. Because that's, that's the point, I think, ultimately. The drive to remove expressions of history that we no longer find palatable, no matter how morally right that is, also comes with it a danger. And that is the removal, not just from the public square, but from public memory. And that is, I think, well, certainly not everybody who is complaining about removal of statues is thinking this. They should. And that is that there are lessons to be drawn from these things. And while I don't mind removing statues or putting them somewhere different so that you, they are aids in remembering things. Because after all, I'm Catholic. That's what statues are for. Um, if we remove what is distasteful from public memory, it is doing the work of Big Brother for him. Because it is yep. rewriting history the way we want it. If history yep. begins with what we find morally acceptable, then it's not going to go back more than one or two generations because the trend always seems to be we are so morally, ethically, politically, socially superior to those who have come before us. So at some point, a new line in the sand will be drawn and everybody before that is no longer worthy of even knowing, much less respecting and learning from. Yep. Got to be canceled. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's what worries me. But I, I think about it farther and longer than most. Yeah. Marty, what do you got in your uh, bourbon glass there? Well, uh, I'm glad you, you brought that up again. I'm, I'm hitting some larceny. I'm getting to the end of that bottle. Um, so I've got a good uh, shot of larceny here. What have you got, Robert? Uh, I've, I've gone back to the Makers 46 again. Mm -hmm. I think next time I will uh, indulge something else, but I hadn't hit this one in a while, so I've done it again. Franny, what about you? Oh, God, Franny again. Uh, Woodford Reserve is always good for me. Uh, yeah, Woodford kind of is always a good choice. I kind of go back to that uh, mostly these days. Uh, but, you know, that will change. As you guys know, we, we, we tend to get into patterns depending on what bottles we have. And when we're not together, it takes longer to go through the bottles. That is so, true. That, that so, way, uh, we bourbon. While we sharing. are on bourbon, yes. I don't know if you guys got the email when I mentioned it, but there's a new bourbon that my former pastor, that we all love so much, uh, he, he brought to my attention called Old Tub. Oh, uh, it was described as 100 proof Basil Hayden. Hang on. And apparently, you can get it a place on East End, but that's supposedly the only place. But it's supposedly really good and bottled and bombed as well. Oh my gosh, he's got a bottle. Actually, no. I have. I do have a bottle. This bo This old tub is from 
This is a bottle bottled in bond from the 1940s. It's an old brand. My grandfather in the 50s took this old tub bottle and put moonshine in it. And that's what you're seeing on the video here, uh, gentlemen. Uh, unfortunately, our listeners can't see it. Uh, he made this. Uh, he even put a stick of charcoal in it to give it the amber color that it has back in the 1950s. And it was never cracked. You see, it's, uh, it's kind of been sealed up at the top. Some of it's evaporated. But it was a gift to me from my aunt who got it from her father, my grandfather, and it's just an heirloom now, but he used an old tub bottle, so it's an old brand that's been around since you that, know, the 30s that and 40s. That is the label they're using, though. See, they, what they, somebody has bought the labeling and bought the brand and brought it back, and to be honest, I cannot wait to try it because this <laughs> stuff here is probably not safe to drink. I'm not about to crack it. Oh, it no, it's no. an heirloom, and it was like yeah, it's, it's, it's a piece of my grandfather. Yeah. Uh, but that's what it is. Uh, so I'm going to try the bottle for the yeah. uh, when we do our next face-to-face. Uh, that's I, I can't wait because I want to try it because, like I say, I'm not about to drink this stuff and probably kill me. Nevertheless, I'm really interested in what it really tastes like. But it's a very old brand. So uh, I bet when you sent that, I was kind of hoping it might come up because I've got this over here on my bookshelf. Tub. Old All tub. Old right. tub. Yep. There you go. Anything described as 100 proof basil Hayden has to be good. I'll agree with that. So as I take another slug of the larceny here, mm, chew that up a little bit. So gentlemen, I'm reminded a little bit of a conversation I had with uh, my youngest, Bjorn. We've talked about Bjorn before. But I had a conversation with uh, Bjorn this afternoon. Um, and... While I'm optimistic of the future, there are some things that concern me. And I think that is the classic, common, um, uh, cultural touchstones that all of us have probably done are going away. And there are points to those touchstones. And in particular, the one I mentioned today was William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Um, because the subject of the, whatever it's called this week, but when it was originally built, it was called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And I think we mentioned this uh, last week in our episode that... Uh, you know, if you haven't been following the news, listeners, people in Seattle, Washington, sealed off uh, like a 12-square-block area of the downtown Seattle and declared it autonomous from all uh, governmental entities. And, uh, you know, people who understand history immediately went, well, okay, uh, that's going to degenerate into a disaster. Anarchy. Once you, remove, once you remove law uh, in whatever fashion that is, uh, anarchy eventually reigns. Yeah. The strong will prey upon the weak. Yeah. It's inevitable. And, it's a question of time. You know, that did eventually happen, and it, it's infuriating because the governmental entities who should have been responsible abdicated those responsibilities. Oh, lack of leadership. Yeah, the, the, great, the greatest of all sins, civically. Yeah. Uh, and let it exist for several weeks before doing something about it. 
lack of moral courage. Yes, exactly. Yes, I mean, you're right. Doing something about it immediately might have been the difficult course. Would have been extremely unpopular, possibly dangerous. Yes, at least immediately. But it would have been the right thing to do because if you understand human nature, if you understand things like the Lord of the Flies, you would understand, okay, this is inevitably going to be a disaster. We have to intervene to protect the innocent, and we have so, to do it now. I want to I play off that because I, 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 I've got a great, what I think will be a great um, set of comments that will lead us to that um, eternal discussion or pointless discussion of eternal uh, things. So the reason that kind of stuff happens when you remove uh, the civic leadership uh, the way it always plays out, uh, degenerating into anarchy, which eventually then becomes a totalitarian type of structure, whether it's yes. in the person of a small committee of public safety <laughs> that is controlling things. Uh, it's always done by brute force. And Robespierre is, is the when obvious. You, pardon? Robespierre is an obvious example. Yes. When you remove that moral or that civic authority, which has its own stamp of moral authority because it is duly constituted, it's not uh, uh, somebody that's come in and conquered you, uh, what you've done is you, re- you have removed the social contract. Yep. When you remove the social contract, you have removed the common understanding of what it means to live as a, as a group of people. And when you do that... You have removed all connection to a higher power, whether that higher power be the previously agreed upon social structure or God. Because if there's no longer an agreed upon structure for you to exercise those inalienable inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it becomes a, a free for all. Whatever I can get for me. Sometimes that's going to be for the group, but it's not going to last. Strong dominate the weak. The strong will dominate the weak because you know in every group of people, somebody would be more selfish than somebody else. The bigger that person is, the bigger stick they carry, the more guns they have, the more they have the ability to impose that selfishness upon somebody else. And when you do that, you have lost that inherent the respect for that inherent dignity. That's what we see every time society collapses. And that's what that was, a mini collapse of the society in that 12-block radius or, yep. or square. And that's, that's the thing I fear uh, more than I fear a 1984 because I find that difficult to believe that that could happen across the entire country. Yeah. I think yeah, it, it would take far more than civil unrest. Possible. I think yeah. it would take a catastrophic... Uh, happening, you know, meteor striking the planet. Well, yeah. The the eruption of the supervolcano under Yellowstone, those kinds of things. Well, that's how V for Vendetta was was postulated. That's how Alan Moore laid it out, is there was uh, a disease that that ravaged through people. And, of course, he builds it up that the disease was actually done by the totalitarian government to make the totalitarian totalitarian government, Norse fire is what they were, uh, brought into power. 
and of course that's that's more uh, that's the way he he works on certain things but you're exactly right that it there must be a catalyst mass insanity outside of Star Trek doesn't happen that much this is not Deneva see you were wondering if I was going to go Star Trek uh, I found a way yet once again well and that's a very Orwellian thing as well because that's one of his quotes is uh, you know you you don't create a dictatorship to safeguard a revolution you start the revolution to create the dictatorship yeah well yeah that's why we've talked about this before Every revolution except ours has resulted in dictatorship and suffering for the people that they were supposed to serve. Mm-hmm. Every yeah. single one. I do. If there is another one, I am not aware of it, but I don't think there ever has been. Again, the obvious one is Robespierre inevitably leads to Napoleon. That's there's right. the big well, one. That's that's the one we all know. The White Russian Revolution inevitably leads to Lenin. Mm-hmm. You know, people okay. don't realize the Russian Revolution was two revolutions. Right. There was a, a, a democracy that ended up being very weak and paved the way for Lenin. Yeah, uh, Bolshevism. Yeah. First World War. You go from, yeah, you go from Kerensky to Bolshevism to the Civil War, and yeah, it's a. Uh, well, we tend I, to eat. You know, the whole thing about eat the rich. No, we tend to eat the poor, and we tend to eat ourselves. You know, we we, we yeah. tend to feed upon the Whatever's weak available. and the, the, yeah. The, yeah. the powerless in these situations. Yeah. And by yeah, we, I just mean societies in general, not not us. Yeah. Hopefully, not us. Yeah. So, listeners, I I don't know that I've expressed it very well, but Orwell is the reason I don't like to see history destroyed. Um, removing objects of veneration of evil people, okay. But we need to not obliterate the past. And that reason is, if you obliterate the past, there's nothing to learn from. There's no knowledge anymore. And as I said, I was lamenting with Bjorn that nobody reads Lord of the Flies anymore. That's one of those books that... Yeah, let's get him to read something different. Let's get him to read. There's no explosions in Lord of the Flies. We can't. Yeah. Read, you know, where's the movie to watch? Yeah, yeah. You know, let's get him to read something from uh, Tony Morrison or whatever. Well, okay, that all that stuff may be good, and it's not that 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 stuff's not good literature, but there's a reason. There's a central reason that Lord of the Flies is important. There's a reason 1984 and Fahrenheit 451 are important, and a reason they are touchstones. If we lose that knowledge, if that knowledge does not pass from generation to generation, then there are dangers down that road. Obliterating the past has dangers. Exactly. And, you know, if, if we get to the point where and I don't know if this would happen, but there's talk of it all the time, and it's gotten seri- more serious of you know taking down the statues of Jefferson and Washington and things like that because they were slave owners. Um, the danger there is not that you, but leaving the emphasis that you venerate slave owners. The danger of taking them down is that you forget the very real positive contributions that they made. You know, 
even though I believe that the left most often misinterprets the, the uh, First Amendment by quoting a private letter of Jefferson's about the separation of church and state, if you remove him, where does that understanding come from? You know, yeah. you remove Washington and what it means to serve and step down as your primary example, where are you? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Washington, and, and we've talked about this before, and I know I've expressed this, Washington is that very central figure that makes our revolution different. Mm-hmm. Because he isn't Robespierre, because right. uh, you know w- w- that anecdote about the unpaid officers and the meeting, and they're ready to go shoot Congress. Right. Uh, and he walks in to the meeting, and by the simple force of his sacrifice, where he puts on his spectacles to talk to the group and says, no, we're not going to do that. I've grown gray in your service. Yes, I know you haven't been paid, uh, but we've all sacrificed. I have as well, and this isn't the solution. Yes, okay, Washington has flaws. The The generation of founders has flaws. Washington is one of the greatest humans that's ever tread this planet for that reason because he prevented, almost single-handedly, our revolution from sliding down the route of the French and the Russian, where it's all about retribution. (laughs) We've been shit on by this class for all of our lives. Our revolution now is more about retribution than about building a new world where people won't be shit on. That's the difference. That's the difference between Lenin, Robespierre, and that group and Washington. It's like that's not the solution. Revenge is not the solution. Building a new world where we can be equal, even though right now it's imperfect, that's the real solution. And that's, yeah, that's well said, sir. Well said. why I admire Washington so much and why I think reading Orwell, reading. Um, William Knowles reading uh, Ray Bradbury is so important for the future. So, fun fact, just to <laughs> take that serious note there. Uh, how many of you know, uh, how, uh, listeners, uh, how many of you know this? Uh, obviously, if you do know, email us, tweet us, you know, whatever. Just let us yep. know. Um, that if you saw the movie 1984 with uh, William Hurt, first of all, fantastic movie. Absolutely phenomenal movie. Uh, there are two soundtracks to that movie. Do you boys know which one was not released? Uh, the one no. with the Eurythmic, the Eurythmics, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Eury- Eurythmics did one, and it was rejected. That's There's right. some great music on that. Yeah, Sex Crimes is one of the songs that that, that kind of made the news back in the 80s when all that happened. Yep. Uh, and it was uh, Richard, one of Richard Burton's last films, too, if I remember right. He played one of the roles in that, uh, if I recall. Uh, I believe yes. you're right. Yeah, yes, he plays uh, O'Brien. Exactly, yeah. And uh, uh, it, it's still considered to be one of the greatest adaptations of, of Orwell's work ever. Uh, for so many reasons. It and really visually captured 
very much what I had in my mind for the look of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. it's just very, very good. Um, but yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up. Uh, it's one of my favorite. Well, well I mean, it's one of the best ways to enjoy great literature, if you're if you're wanting to really get deep into it, watch the movie first and then read the book, and then you'll under. Don't do it the other way around. Yeah, and then it, the movie never stands up. That's right, but that at least gives you an idea where things are going to go and what the themes are, and then you can pluck out certain themes as they occur, and it really lets you go deep with something, uh, assuming it's a fairly faithful adaptation. But, you know, a little, this is the age of, you know, this is the digital age. We can, you can figure that out going in if it's worth watching, and this one definitely is. It's a, it's a, uh, so many books, uh, you know, we, we get a lot of grief for, for, uh, movies that never live up to the book, and maybe that's true, but there are some, lots of faithful adaptations out there that really try to do a great job to, uh, to make something transfer from one medium to another. Yeah, yeah. Well, a salute not only to George Orwell, uh, but also to Dave Stewart and Annie Lennox then. Oh, absolutely. Amen. That's correct, yes. Uh, they are, they are terrific creators. That they is are. exactly right. Yeah, She's yeah. got one of the most amazing voices a, a human has ever been blessed with. Yeah. That's for sure. He's he's a, a terrific talent, multi instrumentalist and songwriter. Yep. He's, he's he does not get the credit for his guitar work and, and other musical instruments that he's. Oh, I agree. I agree. That he should. Agreed. Tremendous musician. Yep. Yep. So uh, you know, would we agree on a lot of stuff? No, but a little but, grace know, to, to acknowledge thing. their ability. Exactly. That's the great thing about. Um, I think the way we approach things is not to pat myself on the back or pat you guys on the back, but it's, I think it's, I recognize it because it's disappearing, and that's the ability to see the great works that somebody's able to produce, whether it be creative or social, whatever, while not agreeing with everything they, they stand for. Um, and, you know, again, that, that is part of the reason why I fear for uh, some of the, the roads we yeah. might be going down, yeah. like War of the Flies not being read. You know, yeah. that, it, now that's not necessarily being not read because of uh, social and political reasons. It's just it's fallen out of favor. Yeah. But, you know, when you stop recognizing the good that others can do, you're going to lose a lot. Yeah. Well, I'll give you another good example, too. I was thinking earlier this week, uh, you know, uh, Carl Reiner passed away this week, guys. He did, yes. Another incredible creator. Yes, uh, he, yes. That we, 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 I think last week we acknowledged, uh, you know, Joe Sennett and, uh, and uh, Denny O'Neill. Uh, but I think it's great to acknowledge what an amazing impact Carl Reiner has had on popular entertainment. Uh, oh, yes. A comedy and the sitcom and, and that format that we know today is hugely sprung from the talent of Carl Reiner. Um, and I was thinking, you know, of course, Rob Reiner is very out there, political, his son. Um, we probably wouldn't agree with hardly anything Rob Reiner has to say, but I was like, you know, if I could... I would say to him, I know you're hurting. Yeah. Your father meant a lot, not just to you. Know this. He meant a lot to lots of people. Right. That is, the, that is the mark of a great life, when you can touch and mean a lot to 
a large number of people. You know, when 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 I'm at uh, vigil services uh, and I'm speaking, and you know, I try not to do much about uh, the person or uh, what death means and all that. But one of the things I do like to point out when there's a large crowd is that everybody standing around them is that person's legacy. Yeah. All that, all those friends, all those families that show up for this to, to acknowledge the passing of the person and how much they were cared for and loved. Uh, you know, and it's the same thing with the impact that somebody like Carl Reiner has, so many lives that he touched that you don't even realize who he is for most of them, but yeah. he had you know his work. Yeah, you yeah. know his stuff. And that's a, that's yeah. a legacy. Yeah. I mean, there are worse things that can be said about a person than, you know, he made us laugh for going on 60 years. Yeah. Um, it, it's easy so, to dismiss and say, well, he's just a comedian. Well, you know what? This is the person who, who touched us for decades. Mm -hmm. so. the, um, uh, one of the best pictures I saw of him uh, today was a picture of him in a Cure t-shirt. I was like, holy crap, talk about, you know, things you don't expect to see. <laughs> in, in a what t-shirt? The Cure. Oh. <laughs> the 80s band. Carl Reiner well, and Robert We're still together, Smith. actually, making music. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, Robert Smith's still out there. Yeah. Still out there. He's a little bit chunkier than he was in the 80s, but yeah, he's still out there. Yeah. Well, who isn't? <laughs> taking a little longer to put the makeup on, but hey. Yeah. So well, he should be good at it by now. All right. So, fellas, do you think we did uh, Orwell justice here? I know we, I we went in a lot so. of different directions, but... Well, you know, that's what I, we I think the thrust that, that we covered, absolutely, because, you know, Orwell can be entertaining just because of what, how he wrote. I mean, he's a good writer. Oh, and, yes. Uh, but, pretty much a master of English. But he is... But, you know, I think, we, I think we did do justice the message he was trying to get across in those seminal novels. Uh, yeah. Amen. And, yeah. Because they're so applicable, not just to today, but any time. That's yeah. right. Yes, they're universal and ageless. And listeners, uh, you know, it, it's in my DNA. Um, it's a very formative thing, and I'm so appreciative that I read those in high school. Uh, and if you have not read Animal Farm in 1984 and some of the other uh, great Orwell works, get out there and get them. Read them. Get them from a library and read them. They're important. They are cultural touchstones that should be shared. Amen. So, Francis, buddy, what is on for next time? Pop culture next time. This is one of mine that I've been asking for uh, for some time now. We're going to we're going back to that planet of the apes, as Homer Simpson would once say. Uh, is it's a, it's something that's generational for us growing up during the time. We've talked about Charlton Heston a little bit. We touched on it a little bit. But it was a phenomenon in the 60s and 70s, and it was rebirthed yet again in the 2000s because it's such an amazing, wonderful, fun, and thought-provoking uh, movie franchise. And we're going to talk a little bit about what, how did it get to there. And why the heck is uh, movies about guys and gals in ape suits take take that? Why do they take over culture? Yeah, it's worth studying. Yeah, Planet of the Apes for next time. Awesome. Amen. Amen. 
Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us, and please remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.